Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we start with Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly. The Baltimore Museum of Art is exhibiting Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly, We Are Ghosts, through August 19th. The exhibition features two new works by Mary Reed Kelly and her collaborator and husband, Patrick Kelly. This is Awful, from 2016, and In the Body of the Sturgeon, from 2017, as well as sets and costumes from the films and related light boxes. The exhibition debuted at the Tate Liverpool before arriving in Baltimore, where it was curated by Kristen Heilman. Baltimore and the Tate produced a small catalog for the show, but as of posting time, it's not available from the BMA's store. If it becomes available, we'll add a link to it on the show page at manpodcast.com. This is Awful, O-F-F-A-L, debuted as a live performance at the Tate Modern on November 19, 2015. The video from that performance is on the show page at manpodcast.com. It was inspired by Thomas Hood's 1844 poem, The Bridge of Sighs, in which a forensic pathologist, Patrick Kelly in Marion Patrick's work, is frustrated by the suicide of a young woman, Mary Reed Kelly, whose body is pulled from the Thames River. In the Body of the Sturgeon tells the story of a fictional American submarine near the end of World War II, and how its crew learned of the American dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima via a broadcast from President Harry S. Truman. Longtime listeners will remember that Mary Reed Kelly's been on the show before, but just her and not Patrick. I asked them about why they are now exhibiting as a duo, and they told me this. Patrick first held the camera for a work of Mary's in 2008, and the idea was that it was Mary's work, but that Patrick helped. As the work became more complicated with sets and such, Patrick began contributing with ideas about filmmaking and editing, so they started jointly attributing the films in 2011, and within the body of the sturgeon, they attribute it to the two of them equally. On the second segment, Ida Moliné discusses her work, which is included in Being, New Photography 2018 at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. But first, Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly, after the break. Experience First Sculpture, Hand Axe to Figure Stone, an exhibition that explores prehistoric tools and collected objects as evidence of the beginnings of artistic intention and craft. In the first museum exhibition to present ancient hand axes as works of art, the show highlights the aesthetic qualities of each stone and provides crucial historical and scientific information to give the viewer a deeper understanding of human history, as well as an enriched appreciation for humankind's early ability to sculpt beautiful objects. On view through April 28th at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. A major international loan exhibition at the Getty Center explores the artistic interplay between the three great cultures of Egypt, Greece, and Rome from about 2000 BC to AD 300. Highlights include finely crafted vessels sent by the pharaohs to Crete, Egyptian statues that inspired the first Greek sculptors, striking portraits in both Egyptian and Greek style, and luxurious decorative objects made for wealthy Romans obsessed with all things Egyptian. Learn more about this spectacular exhibition and the center's spring lineup of events at getty.edu slash 360. This season, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Stories of Almost Everyone. Exploring a dominant impulse in contemporary sculpture of the last decade, the exhibition highlights the work of artists who use found or ready-made objects to convey history, sight, memory, and economies of use. With an international roster of more than 40 artists, Stories of Almost Everyone investigates the relationship between material objects and the stories we tell about them. Stories of Almost Everyone is on view January 28th to May 6th at the Hammer Museum. 
Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Focus, Camrose Aram, is on view now at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Organized by curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition features all new work. Spanning painting, sculpture, collage, and installation, Camrose Aram's work investigates the complex relationship between Western modernism and classical non-Western art. By highlighting their formal connections, he reveals the typically downplayed role that non-Western art and design have played in the development of modernism and its drive toward abstraction. Challenging the traditionally Eurocentric narrative established by art history, Aram's work sets forth to disrupt this perceived hierarchy by merging and equalizing Western and non-Western forms through June 17th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. And we're back. Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. I think we're all used to the protagonists in in y'all's work being women, of course. An address of how women are too often off-center stage in history. And your work has addressed uh, and included women such as prostitutes and nurses in, in broader histories. And we talked about that last time you were on the show, and we'll have a link to that on the podcast show page. These two new works both foreground men in different ways. Let's start with In the Body of the Sturgeon, in which all of the characters are sort of men. Why? Why were you willing to make that that, that shift? One, because I felt that I wanted to push back a little bit on the perception that making work as a feminist artist meant that our characters or um, meant that our characters were limited to women or that the interest in our work was limited to women. And so I thought it would be an interesting experiment to make a feminist film with no women in it. And of course, it's a question, are there women in this film or not? Because although the characters are all male, I'm playing them myself. So it's kind of a, you know, where are the women and where are the men in this? And I've been wanting to embrace more mainstream narratives and approach them from a feminist perspective. So, for example, things like very large historical topics like the First World War, the, the atomic bombings of Japan, because I think those subjects can be treated under uh, a feminist artistry and feminist scholarship as well. So it's partly just being ready to embrace topics like that. You mentioned that all of the characters in in the body of the sturgeon are are played by you, Mary. In This is Awful, there's a male character played by a man, which, so far as I can recall, is the very first time that there has been a man as a man in your work. That man, so far as I know, is Patrick. Yeah. Patrick, how did that conversation go about your being physically in the work i think it was it was largely practical at first because we were well mary was putting together the script for this is awful and we were thinking about and this of course is after doing the tape live performance and and fleshing the script out quite a bit where in the tape live performance i'm there but you really only see my my hands moving the gurney around 
right. or using scissors to cut clothes off of, um, yeah. Right. So it was like performing the action of this autopsy. And with that one, we had already in, kind of instituted this or started this idea where the doctor slash coroner character really wasn't aware of or part party to this dialogue that was going on among the body and the organs. So when it came to doing this larger set context, we knew we wanted to have the doctor there. We knew we wanted to continue this idea of the doctor really being oblivious to the more or less supernatural conversation going on and, and being in a real space as opposed to the fantasy space. So I guess the discussion we were having then was how much, if anything, we say. And I think we really liked the idea of him speaking in verse in the same meter as the dialogue that was going on, but clearly just speaking to himself kind of alone in the morgue so that it was clear that he was oblivious. So, And, it, and so it would get to play upon this genre trope of the ghost yeah. world and the human world being totally veiled from each other. Yeah. Another thing that's new in the work that kind of jumps out is the period periods you're addressing. In, in an interview with Priscilla Frank on the Huffington Post, you, Mary, said that one of the first decisions you and Patrick make when making a film is whether to be in the mythological past or the historical past. Why is that an important decision, and what does each of those things offer you that the other might not? I guess the historical past offers you a wealth of information that is essentially derived from journalistic or memoiristic witness-based information. So it could be a novel or a memoir written by somebody who participated in some world historical event, you know, perhaps they were on a submarine or perhaps they were in a battle and they're recounting it, or perhaps it's their memoirs of their nursing days. When you are in the mythological past, the wealth of information that is your material is no less rich, but it is mostly, if not all, artwork. So what you're mining are plays that feature Ariadne and um, all, you know, Minos, all, 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 this, all these different cast of myth mythological characters, or you might look at vases or carvings or frescoes, or even the works by Picasso or André Masson from 20th century that are also reinterpreting and reviving these characters. So, you know, with, with the historical past, you've got photographs, newspapers, memoirs, and with the mythological past, you have a lot of paintings, a lot of plays, and, you know, so art versus journalism, I guess. Patrick, does it does the difference between an historical past, as in both of these works, and the mythological past, as in the earlier works, does that change what you can or want to do 
in terms of editing or in post? It does a little bit. I mean, right, I was thinking of how we treated, I mean, in, in our version of the mythological past in the, the sort of the Minotaur trilogy, especially with Priapus Agonistes, where we have this mashup of time because it's partly based on this, on Mary's memory of this church gymnasium kind of mashed up with the Minoan temple appearance that it, it doesn't really, it doesn't create like a, a set of rules about things, but it does set up a kind of treatment of the theatricality that is, I think, argue, maybe arguably freer with the mythological past. I mean, when I think so, yeah. Yeah, because when we're so like the, when we're thinking about the set for This Is Awful, which we sort of had this vague notion of it being in the 70s, and we didn't stray too far from that. I mean, it's a very simple set, so we couldn't really do all that much, but we we did not, we wanted that to kind of be in a this vaguely 70s space without being a whole fantasy world of its own, like some of the other sets have been. One of the things about In the Body of the Sturgeon that is immediate and inevitable is that you're taking on what, for lack of a better phrase, we, we might call a traditionally American subject. Obviously, it refers to the Second World War and an American submarine, and it also makes use of a 19th century American text, Longfellow's Song of Hiawatha, and, and I think I would argue there are lots of oblique references to Melville's Moby Dick, too. Why did you want to pivot to America? Well, it was a definite decision. I, I felt that I felt finally ready to deal with some of those very American histories in a way that I certainly wasn't avoiding it, but I was definitely biding my time until... I was ready to take it on, and I think we both felt that it was the right moment. So this is awful. I thought of her, even though it's not an American story that, that is recognizable from 50 yards as being an American history, I thought of her, the main character of Awful, in her self-centeredness and her vanity. The vanity comes out, I, I was thinking of like, What's there to be vain of when you're dead? And, and, and of course, you might be extremely, she's extremely excited and proud of the fact that her body is going to be a pedagogical object. And of course, the, the, the idea for, for that was the idea of, well, you know, Camus starts off the myth of Sisyphus by saying, well, the main philosophical question is, why don't, why don't we just kill ourselves and get this life over with. And the premise of, of Camus' question is that by killing, our, killing ourselves, we can escape all the things that we hate most about life, including, one presumes, our own characteristics and our own flaws. And so I wanted to design a ghost story in which death didn't provide an escape hatch for your flaws. And so this woman, even though she's died, she's died at her own hand, She's still manifesting this intense self-centeredness and vanity. So 
in a way to me, that's obviously not only Americans are vain, but I kind of thought of her in this way as, as an American character, as somebody that I knew, as somebody who had little fragments of myself. So in a way, it was like sticking a small toe into the American psyche or like the female 20th century American psyche with, with the character from This Is Awful. And I think that I had stuck my toe in that pathology before, for example, in our mythological character of Pasiphae, who, even though she's the ancient Minoan queen, I kind of interpret her, interpreted her as a, a contemporary Pam Anderson, bleached blonde, beach babe type character. And so Sturgeon was just a more overt embracing of the, the full-on American pathology that wasn't just kind of gestured at, but they were, they were fully submersed, uh, submarine-like into this kind of this American psyche that uh, we're kind of suffocating in it <laughs> in our submarine. In the body of the sturgeon makes use of Longfellow's Song of Hiawatha. Your your rules for how you use that epic poem include things like you can't uh, every every word in the body of the sturgeon comes from Song of Hiawatha, but you didn't allow yourselves to make use of more than two lines at a time. So we we could only use one line at a time. So we couldn't use two lines from Hiawatha at the same time. Right, right. Sorry, I may have missed. I may have I may have flubbed that. So Patrick, could you tell us how you got to and why you got to Song of Hiawatha, and especially how you made use of it in in editing uh, those jump cuts, if you will, into the film? I was thinking that you know, well, of course, I got to it through Mary and through the, the beginning of the process, which always begins with Mary's writing, but in a very sort of oblique way, I was aware of the force of the poem, The Song of Hiawatha, growing up in Minnesota, ironically, because the power and the influence of this poem in its time was so immense, at least in Minnesota, that there's so many place names named after characters in Hiawatha that are these basically fictional characters turned into a a real place. So, like, I went to a school called Minnehaha that was near, near Hiawatha Avenue, a Longfellow neighborhood. So, Lake Nokomis. Lake Nokomis. And it, it's just, it really permeates the Minneapolis area to almost a comical degree. But when starting to work with it, after Mary put the script together and Mary revealed the form of the, the cento, the, this form, this mosaic poem, her her version of the mosaic poem with its edits, whether it was a whole single line or a half line pulled directly directly from the poem, I immediately started thinking how how are we going to have this in the video in a not invisible way so that we can actually see the mosaic as part of the video along with the text and so that was that was when i thought it would be great to just have jump cuts in the video itself at the exact points of mary's own cuts in her editing of the poem and 
we weren't exactly sure what that would look like. We as soon as as soon as we talked about doing that, we went and did a very quick test of a couple lines, and we realized it's that's exactly what we wanted. This sort of presence of the mosaic of the poem without it being a completely incoherent visual effect. It's it's still continuous because we basically shoot many, many takes for each moment and then piece them together with Mary performing the take more or less exactly the same. But of course that gives you these little breaks that signify the breaks in the in the mosaic chanto itself. You you said once when we were discussing everything that one of the things that you liked about the jump cuts is that it made a visual gesture that what we were seeing was just little bits and pieces, fragments constituted from a much larger whole. Yeah. Like the like the long interminable time that you would spend on a submarine being mm-hmm. kind of diced up and served in a palatable time frame you know, to an audience. And in that way, that's that's what it is to Hiawatha too. You know, Hiawatha, the Song of Hiawatha is 32,000 words. And this, you know, the script is just a very small sampling of it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you're right. It was this jump cuts are so often used as a way to signify time passing. And even though, and we do actually do some of that use of the jump cut as prescribed by the mosaic, the chento itself. But it is, overall, it is sort of continuous time, whether it's, real time or sped up as it is in, in some cases in the video but yeah it does that's one of the things i like or i hope is that it, it does hint at there being this larger video that this is actually made up from kind of like the chento itself is made up from hiawatha i try not to ask questions about why did why didn't you do this why did you do what you did but in the context of what we were talking about earlier and terms of of letting men into the room. So Longfellow's Song of Hiawatha is a fictional mashup of Native American tropes and stories of many tribes and geographies into one thing by Longfellow. And Mary, you chose to use Longfellow, a man, instead of, say, Margaret Fuller, whose Summer on the Lakes is a story of a more personal experience of specific Native American tribes in what was then the Northwest. Did you think about using Fuller instead of Longfellow? Was there a specific reason to use Longfellow because because he was a man? Not because he was a man. The thing that even motivated me to look at this poem as a possible source for the video was because it was written in trochaic tetrameter. So here are a couple lines from from the Song of Hiawatha. By the shores of Gitche by the shining big sea water, stood the wigwam of the moon, daughter of the moon, the compass. So we're hearing that da 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 that trouble, trouble, wait, double, double, boil and treble. That's which is from Macbeth, of course. So it's this. It's essentially a, an inverted or very incantory sounding meter. The reason I wanted to write the submarine story in that meter is because it was so kind of unnatural to the tongue. 
I presume that's also why Longfellow chose it for his epic. And, you know, because Tyler, you brought up this kind of letting men into the room idea, I think in an important way, although I've, I've been inspired by male and female artists can continually, oftentimes I'm inspired by, particularly by either works or authors that have this, I suppose we, we could certainly use the word entitled perspective. The Sisyphus of, the Syphilis of Sisyphus was essentially a parody of Baudelaire. We adapted a poem of Swinburne's. He's somebody that we both kind of admire and also are critical of. I think when I opened up the Song of Hiawatha, which is the longest poem in the English language in trochaic tetrameter, I was basically looking at it to see how Longfellow used it and if I could basically <laughs> tips for writing in trochaic tetrameter from <laughs> Longfellow, who's done this extremely long marathon in it. But because, because the poem Hiawatha is essentially an epic poem about a young man, about a young hero who goes on all these quests and fights battles and falls in love, I thought, you know, I'm essentially writing a story, a, a poem about uh, a group of young men, young warriors who <laughs> are facing their own set of challenges. So thematically, it's got maybe more in common than one might think. But it was the the oddities and the flaws of Longfellow and of the Song of Hiawatha that ultimately made it attractive enough to write, because I like to respond, not necessarily, I like to respond artistically, not necessarily in anger, but with that little frisson of like punching back a little bit. And so choosing an author like Fuller or Virginia Woolf, who's a great inspiration to me. I, I feel like I am or I could relate to those people and it doesn't it doesn't provoke me to respond with the type of force that somebody like a Longfellow or a Baudelaire would. One you know, one of the other things that really jumps out of in the body of the sturgeon to me is that it's engaging with a lot of the nineteenth a lot of nineteenth century America's self conscious and, and wholly earnest search for the great American thing, uh, for finding Americanness, whether that be in a novel or in an artwork or a painting, whatever. And Sturgeon does that, I think, via addressing America's longstanding fascination with violence. Was, was addressing violence a motivation, an interest? Just like we wanted to make a like a, a feminist uh, submarine film history with a historical film with no, like e either way you look at it, it's got no men in it or no women in it, one or the other, I guess, how, however you interpret the the character. But it, it is, we wanted to make a film with a war setting that was, it, it has no battles, there aren't any violence, violent episodes. And and that's very similar to the take we took with our earlier World War One films, which have the setting of war, but they are they the people who feature in those films are not concerned with the making of battles. They're concerned with getting through their frustration, their boredom, 
learning to learning to inhabit the, the roles that war forces you into, which happen to be very gender specific roles. So yeah, it's 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 a submarine film with no violence, a war film with no violence. But just we were we were quite inspired by a lot by the enormous catalog of of submarine films, some of which are just really outstanding, and probably the greatest of which, which we watched several times, is, is a German film, Das Boot. I, it's actually a television series. I believe it was made for television. It's about six hours, and I think it's from 1979. A lot of submarine films are horror films in drag as a war film. So they're kind of all dressed up with the kind of in, in battle dress. But the real heart of a submarine film are the moments of tension when the submarine is kind of hiding from whatever boat is on the surface, dropping depth charges on it, you know, learning how to deal with the shortage of air, the deterioration of air quality, watching the breakdown of, of the social cohesion or social hierarchies on board uh, this very tiny boat with 80 people living shoulder to shoulder. Those are, those are really what submarine films are about. So they're, they're the most psychological of war films. One of the decisions that y'all made was not to show the central event of, of 1945, the explosion of the first atomic bomb over Hiroshima. And instead you have Mary Truman, if you will, (laughs) (laughs) doing Truman and drag and, and Patrick. And for me, that's one of the most effective and interesting parts of the film. It's kind of where I figured out how the editing was, was working related to, to the text, to the verse. Patrick, could you talk about how, that was shot, edited, right down to, say, the movement of the palm trees behind the monitor, if you will. And it's interesting because that is, that's the first thing we shot, isn't yeah. it? We shot Truman before anything else, which also actually, I think, lends to the nature of Mary's performance because it was pretty strict about the meter at that point in the recitation of the speech. It was the first thing we shot. We were actually considering like having a metronome almost mm-hmm. to allow to to get the trochaic titrameter right on. So it's it's just it was interesting then as we did everything else to come back to that and fit it back in and see how it differed and complemented the rest of everything else we shot. But that said to to shoot it, it was fairly straightforward shot with much more aligned with the way we've done things in the past, which is a, a green screen behind Mary with the costuming and makeup and just a simple desk. But we were really, we really looked closely at the actual footage of Harry Truman on the USS Augusta giving the speech because we realized we wanted, in this case, since this is the first time we were depicting an actual historical character in, in one of our works, we, we wanted to have a certain kind of adherence to the actual setting as it existed in history. So we looked carefully at his position in the boat on, on the USS Augusta with his office and the porthole window and the wires and the 
it, it was slightly messy. yeah slightly cluttered setting even in the actual footage and then with the shot before that the, the radio operator on land who was introducing the truman speech basically informing the submarine operator that he has this this audio that he wants to basically relay to them we wanted to carefully more or less carefully delineate who was on the submarine who was on land and have them have a little bit of a verbal battle with each other about who it was a little bit of this kind of bravado battle they have mm -hmm. right before introducing the speech and so we just wanted to have some elements of signifiers that donate that this man is comfortable on land in his office and he has the palm trees which are just a couple drawings that mary provided me and then i kind of animated them in the background in the window he has this hawaiian shirt on his comfortable messy office and then the submarine operator is in his cramped little dark quarters and we we decided that we wanted to move into kind of a split screen situation for the brief argument before we introduced Truman. But there, it, it was a, a lot of layers to it in that we wanted to have Truman on a little monitor that would look like something that the military would have had at that time, early television monitor. Mm -hmm. And of course, no high-tech way of relaying it. He just had to put his microphone in front of the monitor to send it to the submarine. One of the things that jumps out of both that this portion of, of the film and the catalog is the lapel pin that Truman, Truman is wearing. I certainly noticed it in the film, but I took extra note of it because it's pretty much the last, you know, it's the next to last image in the catalog, but it's the last image on a right-hand page. So it kind of reads as the last. Why was that important? So Truman was a Mason. Um, so was FDR. So were a lot of other presidents. But Truman just loved the masculine fraternization of groups. And so he he was a big joiner. He, you know, any, any type of um, charitable organization that involved a lot of sitting around playing poker, Truman just loved that stuff. Um, it was it was more it was really a, just a gesture to his his reality as a person and who he was. The speech that he's giving is kind of a version of a translation into the language of Hiawatha because of course the State Department and Truman had carefully prepared this statement in advance of the bombings and they had worked on it for quite some time because this was not just an announcement of, of a military event, but the announcement of the introduction of atomic energy, atomic weaponry. And so they really couched it in this very, it sounds very 19th century, the grandeur, the old school State Department way of saying things, quite flower, flowery and very naturalistic. And that made it actually quite not like easy, but it seemed it was an, a strange fit, the, the kind of inappropriate use of natural imagery in the Truman Statement, basically saying we have, you know, conquered the power of the natural universe, we have uh, conquered the power of the sun, we have brought up energy to, to bear 
to make war against uh, the enemy, you know, our, our nation's enemies, translated pretty smoothly into the kind of overwhelmingly pastoral language of Longfellow and his kind of pre-industrial world of Hiawatha. Pivoting back to This is Awful, I think we mentioned earlier that in 2015 you performed it or a version of it at the Tate. Was that your first performance? I believe it was, yes. So explain for me how performing the piece informed or maybe didn't inform doing it in video. I I guess what I kind of immediately jumped to is how the later that we did, which the performance, the live performance that was developed out of the tape performance, which uses the same script as the video itself, word for word. I don't know. I mean, the timing was really compressed. Like we were working on the the video for this is awful, kind of simultaneous to working on. The live performance of it using the same script. Well, I, can I just back up and say that this is a slightly confusing yeah. mashup of works with all the same title, and I, it may not be clear. So there's the initial version that we did for live broadcasts for the Tate. Then I rewrote the script, and we simultaneously made a video of that script, and we did an, a real live in Berlin and in Belgium. And that was like a live stage type. Yeah, in front of people. The Tate live piece was just in front of the street. A single camera, I think. Did doing it live inform, impact doing it in video for film installation? Or do you think you kept them separate? Or how, you know, I'm curious as to how, I mean, there's such different experiences for you and I wonder how that just kind of played out. I guess the the great thing that performing something live can give you is the chance to perform for an audience or deliver something to an audience who has the opportunity to see it from the beginning to end. And that is fundamentally different from most of the time someone would encounter our work, they would encounter it in the middle just because you know uh, whenever you would walk into a a gallery or a screening situation it would just be rolling so you'd probably just walk into it in the middle so it it was nice to to have that feeling of building up to the end of a narrative and to have it not be chopped up I mean, the narrative is about being chopped up, but it's nice to (laughs) not have it be chopped up in time. (laughs) We've talked a little bit about how you've opened your work up by bringing in men. One of the things that you haven't changed since the beginning, including in, for example, the, the live piece for the Tate, is the restriction of your visual palette to grisaille, to black and white. And shades of gray. What was your original decision to do that? And is that still the reason you do it? Or or has the reason changed over the years? I think it's changed yeah. over the years. I think when we were initially making our first films that were set in the context of the First World War, it seemed 
like an, a gesture to the print media and the film world of the time. And we've never said absolutely we would never do something in color. I think that we both feel highly invested in this visual language that that we've made in collaboration. And I feel like we have yet to encounter a scenario in which we genuinely think that we could do it better in color. And I think if we did encounter that situation, I don't think we would hesitate. We're not ideologically attached to black and white, but one thing that we do like about it is that it is an immediate signal that we're not in the world of naturalism and that we're in an artificial world, that we're in a story several steps away from the reality of, of witnessing events. And that works in concert with the, as soon as you hear the, the language, the fact that you immediately recognize that this is a, a formalized language of some kind, depending on work. And so when, like, when I think about just the phrase of doing something in color, the, the only, as it is now, I feel like the only way that seems possible is if it just, it used color in some way, in the same sort of formalized way that you recognize immediately that this isn't, you know, like, television naturalism or something like that. So, again, it's, you know, it's not like we're dogmatically opposed to color. It's that I feel like, at least now, it would have to work within that recognition mm-hmm. phase of having left the real world. You know, when I started thinking about that in the context of these works, I also found myself becoming aware that everybody in all of your works are, are white people, both in terms of the, 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 the figures in your films look on, on screen and, of course, the, the makeup. Is that something that you're conscious of or that is an issue for you? It is something I'm conscious of because... As it is now, we've committed to using myself, my body as a performer, as a primary material. And as a white person, I can't just impersonate or any character that I wanted to. And those are limits that I believe are there in righteousness and there for a reason. And additionally, just the larger issue of choosing which stories to tell, I think there are... The Song of Hiawatha is an appropriation by a very prestigious, mature, white artist of indigenous culture. He used it not to elevate those people, but to tell an exotic and titillating story that is a fantasy of what, not only of what, of of the beauty and the expanse of the American continent, but I believe the primary fantasy at the center of the Song of Hiawatha is a fantasy of non-harm of white people versus Native people. Because if you read the poem, what happens in the end of the poem, and the poem takes place at at the time of the initial contact between native tribes and Catholic missionaries from France. So we're talking about the 1600s. And what 
Longfellow chooses to have Hiawatha, the great hero that he's just spent 3,200 words talking about Hiawatha's magical powers. Basically, at the end of the poem, Hiawatha and his people greet the white Catholic priests, and then Hiawatha, kind of everyone goes to take a nap, and Hiawatha literally sneaks off and rows his canoe into the distance. I believe this is a fantasy that Longfellow was allowing Americans to indulge in, is that Native Americans left on their own accord. We didn't push them out. We didn't murder them. We didn't steal their land. They chose to go. They, and, and actually Longfellow chooses to make it, he, he, he frames, as, frames it as an act of grace by Native Americans, gracefully seeding the field to a much more complex and kind of rapacious, but undeniably powerful alternate civilization. The, the subject of, this, of the Song of Hiawatha is not nativeness, it's whiteness. So when I, when I make the, when this new film that's kind of made out of the Song of Hiawatha, which is basically, it should be titled The Song of White Fantasy. And there's also an incredible fantasy of white non-harm that happens in the atomic bombings as well. These are the triumvirate of white America's sins are the, the genocide of Native Americans, the enslavement of Black people, and the invention and dissemination of atomic weapons. These, 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 it doesn't get any bigger than those three to me. And there are elements of white fantasy deeply embedded in all of these narratives. And I think that and also a part a part of the the like the heart the heart of whiteness is is this vacantness this nothingness it's like when let's say somebody came from Ireland or came from Italy in, in the 18th or the 19th century they came to America they set up shop somewhere and they dropped their italianness or their irishness and they became white instead so there's whiteness is this kind of vacuum and into that vacuum you know you give up your ethnicity and in in return you get white supremacy you get anger you get violence to me this is very difficult and elusive topic to get a handle on but i am trying to do it in this piece and i think that one way white artists can go about essentially re-racializing whiteness and endowing, like filling that vacuum, that vacuum at the heart of whiteness, not with the non-comfort, the lies of white supremacy, but filling it with, you, you can fill it with history. You can fill it with like sober judgment, sober reckoning. And, and, and also like, I, I wouldn't necessarily call our work sober. It's, it's, it's silly, but at times, but it can be, it can, you just fill it with cultural complexity, fill it with thought. Just don't let it be nothing. Don't let it be just some vacuum in space, which is what whiteness is. And so I think part of, part of that, filling that vacuum is not letting white 
cultural creations that have tremendous prestige and tremendous influence, something exactly like the Song of Hiawatha, not to just let it sit untouched over the centuries, but to treat it as material, to use it, and to turn it back on itself, make it say something its author didn't intend, to reappropriate these old dinosaur appropriations. And so as I, as I, I was looking for scholarly articles on the Song of Hiawatha, they're, they're not that many because of the poem's inherent silliness. I was also looking for native perspectives on the Song of Hiawatha, and I think that's where I was most misguided in my initial searches because the, the Song of Hiawatha has nothing to give to to Native Americans. It has, it, this poem is not for them. It's not about them. That was kind of my first like slap in the forehead. Oh yeah, the, you know, the subject of this poem is not what it purports to be. It's something else. It's whiteness. That, the poem is about whiteness. Well, if I could add one, one thing to that, that is probably too obvious for, for y'all to point out. The, the film and its doubling over of of fictional material and factual reference, the jump cuts, the retransmission of a retransmission of Truman's speech, which is actually Marion Drag doing Truman. And of course, the speech in your film itself matches up passages from kind of both the actual speech and a speech given at a different time. It all kind of exists. The, the whole thing exists, as a lot of your work often does as a conscious metaphor for the slipperiness of historical fact and historical memory. And I think it I, I think it lives that way too. Two more things, both lighter. So Mary, what's your obsession with body hair? <laughs> it's <laughs> it's in all your films, it's not exactly a gender signifier, but it's gendered. And it's important to you because it's in everything. How and why? I think that on a on a female body, and, and actually I think this is kind of creeping into into male ideals of beauty too. That that kind of this not either hairlessness or like a tightly restricted regime of hair control is is pretty assumed. Assumed for a while, it's not news to anybody, and I really in, enjoy the profusion of body hair on the female characters is a way of signaling either their defiance of gross body, con body hair control regimes or possibly their unaware violations of the body hair regime. So it's not like they're rebels loud and proud that maybe they just don't realize that they forgot to shave that morning. But they've gone out of bounds. They're in the red zone or something. I think it's also because in regards to your earlier black and question about black and white, we said that the black and white is keeping naturalism at a distance. And the profusion of this fake body hair is a way of bringing the naturalism in, but in a very codified and mannered fashion. And so I think that just whenever there's a way to 
remove the natural and put in a characterization of the natural will do it. And also being able to kind of signal signal at the same way, like by constantly pointing at the pubic hair and at the body hair, I think it's a way of pointing out how constant regimes of control are. And we pointed a lot of these regimes of control uh, as applied to women, but certainly with the new film, the people subject to the regimes of, of control are the men in the submarine. Finally, I'm not sure which of you this question is for, but one of you is obviously a lover of murder mysteries. <laughs> the protagonist at the beginning of In the Body of the Sturgeon is reading Agatha Christie's great 1942 Miss Marple novel, A Body in the Library, and a light box you made related to the piece is titled Gaudy Night, which is the title of a Dorothy Sayers novel, one of her Lord Peter Whimsey novels. So why the murder mysteries? Why those two? Well, so we both love murder mysteries. Yeah. We we watch them together. <laughs> We're enormous fan of police procedurals. And actually, I'll just put in that the set design for This Is Awful is based off of a morgue that we saw in yeah. the PBS series Endeavor, which is the, uh, the prequel series to the Inspector Morris. And it takes place in the late 60s. Yeah. And the reason that we were like, as soon as we saw the late mm -hmm. 60s morgue, we are like, that's our period. Yeah. Because it, if you look at contemporary body pathology murder mystery shows, the morgues and those are all stainless steel, and you really didn't want to represent stainless steel as a material because you're not super interested in it in stainless steel. Yeah, but it also, but just the spaces themselves are far more interesting yeah. before they become ultra clinical, like yes, they exactly. do a few years later. Yeah. It still has a sense of grunginess to it that they just don't have later. And but yes, it was directly from the endeavor. I I I totally basically have a worshipful attitude towards towards the achievements uh, in of these books. And I just about a year and a half ago, I had I had been a Dorothy Sayers just super fan for years, and I had only read bits and pieces of Agatha Christie. And I got the Miss Marple Omnibus, which is 14 novels and three collections of short stories. And I read them through, at, at, you know, <laughs> one, one after the other. And it was like one of the greatest experiences of my life. The reason that they're there is, one, it's a way to put on the table right away the presence of women on the boat. And where are the women on the boat? And kind of let's look for the women. Let's, let's find the women on the boat like a game, but also I think that with the way that we approach the punning and the wordplay, one of the reasons we have really embraced that over over the years, not just as, as, as a one-off, but continually coming back to the wordplay is that it creates a type of attention that we, we really enjoy creating for an audience, which is kind of this, it's a very heightened level of attention. Like if once you hear a pun and your brain's like, ooh, it's a joke, I can get, it's, 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 it's a joke system. And then you listen for the next one and you get that one and then you get that the next. And it's, and it's, I really like that kind of keyed up, keen 
snuffling for truffles attitude in in a viewership and the the novels of, of Christie and of Sayers create the same atmosphere of kind of being alert like it's it's like create creating an, a hyper alertness ideally you know creating that state in your audience isn't there also this thing of like a genre within a genre like yeah <laughs> genre literature the, the murder mystery and yeah. genre film submarine films and like embedding one genre and another Two things about that. I, I could have but did not mention that the other novel that is present in much of Sturgeon is a Carson McCullers book. And then the other, I, 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 uh, Gaudy Night is famously set in the book at Shrewsbury College, Oxford, which is a thinly veiled send up or take on where Sayers went to college, which was Somerville College, Oxford. And I imagine that kind of doubling over was also attractive to you. <laughs> yes. And also, and I think Gaudy Night is probably her most perfect novel. Of course, it's kind of in the middle of the trajectory of the story. But the heroine of, of that novel is also a, a pretty thinly disguised self-portrait of Dorothy Sayers herself. The protagonist's name is Harriet Vane. Harriet Vane is... Um, v- V-A-N-E, by the way. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> How very vain of her. <laughs> well, Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly, thank you so very much. Thank you, thank Tyler. You, Tyler. Now through April 15th, The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents three spectacular exhibitions from a stylistically diverse group of artists. All of Everything, Todd Oldham Fashion, presents dozens of intricately embellished garments from the multi-talented designer's fashion stint in the 1990s. William Kentridge's The Refusal of Time explores thought-provoking ideas about time through an immersive mix of sounds, movement, and stunning imagery. And from Austrian photomontage artist Anita Vitek, comes her first-ever U.S. installation, Clip, on view in the Wexner Center lobby. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Peacock in the Desert, the Royal Arts of Jodhpur, India, an exhibition showcasing four centuries of royal treasures on view in the United States for the very first time. Masterpieces that illustrate the history and artistic legacy of the Rathor dynasty are featured, including... Jewels, paintings, furnishings, textiles, a Rolls-Royce, a vintage aircraft, and much more. On view through August 19th. Visit mfah.org India for more. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Courtside Photographs by Bill Bamberger, an exhibition of vibrant color photographs of a variety of basketball hoops around the world. From Maine to Florida and Rwanda to Mexico, the hoops indicate places both where basketball is played and where communities and relationships are built. They are objects that often shape and reflect those communities. As a part of many diverse landscapes, the hoops become integral elements of each location's unique narrative. The artist, Bill Bamberger, is a resident of Durham, North Carolina, and an instructor at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. On view through May 13th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. 
Next up, Ida Molinay discusses her work, which is included in Being New Photography 2018 at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The exhibition, which was curated by Lucy Gallen, is on view through August 19th. Molinay is an Ethiopia-based photographer whose work is in the collections of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African Art, where she first exhibited in 2003, and the Hood Museum at Dartmouth. Ida Molinay, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. The pictures at MoMA are from your The World is Nine series, and the most immediately striking element of the pictures, especially in, in this body of your work, are the intensity of your palette and your use of body paint. So let's start with the intensity of your palette. In other interviews, you've said it comes from your own culture, Ethiopian culture, everything from clothing to wall paintings in Ethiopian Orthodox churches. Could you give us a couple examples and maybe talk about or explain how they migrated into your work? I mean, just initially, um, you know, I started as a photojournalist and, uh, you know, one of the things I've always said is that I'm not able to see color. So I've always had this preference for black and white photography because obviously my obsession was in, you know, lines and shades and so forth. But when I started doing the studio work, what I found interesting was that I figured since I'm just at the beginning, that I, I wanted to first focus on the primary colors, which is, you know, the, the red, the blue, the yellow, and white and black. And then from there, to try to figure out how to, in a sense, process it as an artist. But as I kept doing the work and focusing on these primary colors, it also kind of dawned to me that I was really tapping into the church paintings that you find uh, in Ethiopia, which a, a large portion of it is based uh, solely on the primary colors. So I started exploring this. And even when you look at the, the clothing and sort of the hairstyles, the, the paints, you know, it's a mix of I'm, I'm really bringing something from the tradition or from my background and putting it forward into sort of my own self-expression. So a lot of the body paintings is inspired from the different traditions that exist in, in the country. And a lot of the inspiration also comes just from my daily experiences of uh, living in Addis Ababa. You've talked a little bit before about how color is is universal, something that is shared across mm -hmm. the world. I mean, green is green mm -hmm. in Ethiopia, green is green in Thailand. Right. How did you come to consider color being a universality that was meaningful and, and worth focusing on? You know, through the research that I've done, especially when we're looking at body ornamentation and, you know, uh, body painting, just alone across the continent, there's a lot of similarities. And then when I started looking beyond the continent, and for example, when you see how, uh, you know, the uh, aboriginals of South America, how they were mm. using body paint, you know, there's no connection historically to some of the regions. But again, it, it's sort of transmitted into the sort of of seeing that th there is a global connection and this is what I'm trying to focus on is that you know that the colors that I pick they're very specific I know that a lot of people are attracted by the colors because there's another layer of messaging that I'm trying to express so by having these bright colors people come closer to the image and there is a universal aspect to it but at the same time my work is very graphical and if you notice you know there isn't a lot of shadows in my images no. I'm basically creating like a stamp you know and also I'm trying to remove our geographical differences or cultural differences but I'm, I'm really trying to portray the universal struggle of how we exist as you know as a reflection of our humanity also at the same time 
So, you know, to me as an artist living and working in Ethiopia, my struggle in my country is going to be the same as somebody who's working in New York. You know, obviously there's different variations of what that, how you define that struggle. But to me, it's like, I feel that now that we're moving to a global world, I think we have to really look for points of what brings us together as opposed to like what divides us, you know, because in the end, it's like we are in it together. So for that, it's, you know, the, the, the colors bring people, you know, into one space. And as you can see, I haven't really picked, you know, my images, obviously there are markers of my heritage, but at the same time, you know, I'm not only presenting the continent, you know, I'm, I'm trying to really be inspired by the world and also what I see in the contemporary issues that are coming up around the world, especially when you look at the new collection of work that I have. Are, are there particular painters or photographers whose use of color has been of interest to you? I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Frida. I think her work really speaks to me because she was addressing something very personal through her own personal experience. And that's how I feel that this is what I'm pursuing uh, as well. You know, there's been a joke that my work is coming into sort of like being like the Andy Warhol of Africa. You know what I mean? But, you know, my, my inspiration, I, I can't sit here, you know, I'm a big fan of Avedon as well, Irving Pan. You know, there are different artists, different photographers that inspire my work. And it's not just from the visual arts, but, it, you know, my inspiration comes from the music, from poetry, from reading books, from the daily life. So I can't pinpoint and tell you, like, you know, this is the only person that that I'm attracted. You know, this is the only work that I'm interested in because I'm I'm really a global citizen on so many levels. And my inspiration comes also from the global world, you know, especially from the experiences and the travels that I've done, uh, not only in, you know, the Western world, but also within the continent. It's interesting you mentioned Frida Kahlo. There's a whole lot of figures in in Kahlo's work that are looking right back out at the viewer. And there's a lot of that in your work too. And one of the works I wanted to ask you about is a 2016 work called Psy Motto, mm -hmm. The Distant Gaze, mm -hmm. that, that may get at this. It shows a woman wearing a bright red suit with her hands painted blue, her face painted blue and red, and she's looking at a photograph, or what we read is a photograph hanging on the wall, or what we read is a photograph hanging on the wall, a photograph that appears to be of, of her. So why is that pair? And this is something you do in a number of works where you pair somebody frontally with somebody shown in profile. Why is that an interesting juxtaposition? I, I mean, I, th I think with the doubling up of the the characters that I use, it's also uh, for me an expression of like my own duality of that I, I exist again between the West and the continent. And and it's quite challenging because then I spend a lot of my life really trying to figure out where do I belong? Because, you know, as an immigrant, I don't really belong on this part of the world. And then when I go back home, I'm sort of like a Westerner in that, in that sort of uh, context. But that image for me was very specific. It was unfortunately... You know, a lot is lost in translation in English, but there is like this proverb where it talks about the longing for a lover who is, doesn't come back, you know, and there's this expression of, you know, uh, she's waiting for him to return, but her youthful gaze or he, her youthful eyes sort of, you know, melt. And I know that translation is horrible, but but it was really like based on just my personal experiences when, when it comes to relationships. And, th and that's what I was trying to express in that. And then if if you look at the checkered floors, you know, again, that was sort of my, sort of in a sense, like my shout out to Malik Sidibe, as you know, in the studio of all the images that he created, he always had these checkered floors. So 
it's a it's a different way of looking at the contemporary portrait, but it was really an extension of, you know, memory. It's an extension of the past. It's an extension of, you know, my own experiences. So through this, you know, a lot of the images do have these two characters because, and, I, and I've said this in my previous collections of uh, The Wolf You Feed, is that, you know, there are choices that we make in our lives, you know, and based on those choices is where, you know, whether we get ahead or we, you know, don't get ahead. And there is a choice between doing good things. There's a choice of doing bad things. You know what I'm saying? So through that, these are sort of, I feel like the battle that we have within our within ourselves on a daily basis of what decisions that we choose to make. There's a work in the MoMA hang that features a character looking outward from what appears to be a train car, uh, looking out the window of a train car, and, and another figure in profile, which I think is the same figure. Is, mm-hmm. is that the same kind of pairing? Yeah. So, for example, on, on the departure, we have this train station uh, called Lagahar, which was built during uh, Emperor Menelik's time, which was basically the train going from Addis Ababa to the port city of Djibouti. Um, the train station is just, you know, sort of a relic of the past. It still remains uh, there, but it's not functional uh, currently. You know, they, for example, the, they have built a new train line going to Djibouti, but this space still exists. And what I found fascinating within that train car was sort of my own childhood of when, you know, we had to leave Ethiopia or in a sense escape Ethiopia during the communist period where on one hand, you know, uh, my mother never wanted to leave. But on the other hand, we had to leave because of just, you know, it was impossible to survive at that time. But again, this basically transmitting two messages within one one piece. You know, there is this, you know, as Ethiopians, we always have this longing for home. You know, we never want to leave. And even if you look at during Emperor Hadis Selassie's time, there were a lot of students that went to different parts of the world for scholarship. But nobody had an intention of remaining in the Western world. Everybody was like, because the attachment to home was so strong, everybody always, you know, we had like, I don't know, it was like some something like a 90% retention where people came back and made a contribution back to the country. So with that said, it was just, you know, we had this interesting period in our history where we had the biggest exodus of our people, which we've never had before. And then that came with its own, you know, way of thinking, it had its own impact on the society, not only in the diaspora of our own people, but also in the country. And this is what I was trying to express through this: is that the train is moving forward, but you know, there's this longing of remaining, and then there's also this anticipation of what it, what lies ahead as we move forward, sort of the, the unknown future. Are there formal or historical reasons you like pairing someone looking out at us with someone shown in profile? I mean, local understanding is another work, for example, where where we see this, and it's a pretty art historically loaded juxtaposition, too. No, it's 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 the 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 posing of the models. So first of all, like the, the models that I that I choose, you know, I'm I'm looking for very specific features. So as you know, like when you paint a face, there's different features that pop out. So that that's the first thing. Like I have to look at proportions and what have you. And then the second thing is that I'm looking for that specific gaze. You know, it's it's a specific turn of the head that has a very intense look, you know, especially when it's printed and displayed, you know. So for example, as you know, like the Mona Lisa, whichever direction that you're in, you know, the eyes still follow you. This is the goal that I'm trying to, to portray is that intense glance that you're not focusing on the beauty of the woman. You're actually focusing on the content of what I'm trying to say through these women who are like, you know, my characters in a film, 
you know. So so for that, it's just I'm I'm trying to remove the sort of the superficial element of how women are presented within artworks, and I'm trying to really portray a very specific storyline that has dignity and has strength and, you know, uh, with a very precise message that I'm trying to get across. So the eyes and also this sort of looking at you and looking away from you, it's really this play that I'm, I'm trying to explore on how to get a specific impact, but at the same time to share, you know, my visual journey you know, with the audience. Another work in Being is titled All in One, mm -hmm. and it shows a woman wearing, wearing blue seated and holding her right hand in the traditional symbol so familiar from, from centuries of European painting of Christ bestowing a blessing upon the viewer. Why was that? Is that <laughs> your intended reference? And if so, why was that a reference you wanted to make? I mean, it's... Uh... It's it's funny you should uh, say that. First of all, just to go back to the wardrobe and hair in that piece, the wardrobe a lot from The World is Nine came from archive images of Ethiopians from the 1930s and 40s. And, you know, we have this tradition of wearing like a cape at that time. And it was so elegant to me. And even the, the afros that they had was like so precise. And it was just, I don't know, they, they, it just spoke volumes to me of how there was a grace uh, within that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, as an Orthodox myself and also as coming from a country where, you know, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has a big influence in our culture, what I was trying to express in that was just looking at a lot of the, even when you look at the, the images of the emperor, there's always this thing of he's holding like the globe in one hand and then there's that positioning. So to me, this was really a way of, uh, through the female voice, to really express spirituality, but not necessarily in a Christian way or, you know, to me, not in an Islamic way, but it's, it's, this is why I said it takes, it's all in one, you know, and regardless of how, what we belie believe in or how we practice our faith, it's, it's something that's very personal, but I think in the end it requires sort of our dedication to truth and love, you know? So that's what I was trying to express. And in previous interviews, you know, there's been this conversation of like my influences come from Asian religions or Buddhism and all these other things. And I find this quite fascinating. And I've said this in the past is that there's a conscious approach. You know, the, the way that I do my work is I start with a sketch, you know, from the sketch, then I'm doing the set. And then from the set, I'm thinking about the colors and the design and so forth. But in the production part of it, after all of that is done, there are certain things that, you know, it's the viewer that tells me, well, this is what I was thinking was in your work. And it's quite fascinating. And and it's really like a subconscious manifestation of a lot of the things that, that you see coming out. So I have a very specific intent, but uh, what comes out also is just this conversation that I'm having with, you know, my insights or my soul in, in a way. So it's quite fascinating to get this reaction. And actually, you're the first one to pick up on this, the hand gesturing, because nobody has picked up on it. And you kind of can see that there's different hand gesturing, uh, not only in this collection, but in the other collections, because I, I feel that, that it has a specific strength to it based on these hand gestures. So it's not necessarily about, just not only about the spirituality element of it, but it's really of transmitting very specific conversations. You mentioned a while back in our conversation that you were a photojournalist. You worked for the Washington Post. What did you shoot? What did you learn from it? I mean, working at the Washington Post was really uh, 
a great experience in the sense that it really taught me how to tell a story. And I mean, I, I joke to them now, but I remember, you know, back in the day, it was like, you know, the editors would be like, you know, are you an artist or are you a journalist? You know, you have to decide which one you're going to do. And for me, I wanted to do both. And in a strange <laughs> way, it's kind of come back in full circle where I'm able to do both. Uh-huh. But what the Post had given me was really to understand how media works in a global sense and also how perceptions also play a big part on the kind of perspective that we're presenting. And for that, you know, I'm obviously indebted to that experience. But, you know, what, what you see translating into the final work is I'm, I'm still continuing on, you know, I'm still telling stories, but that story is sort of within one piece or with, within one frame of just the ideas that I have or whatever that I'm experiencing. So even in the new collection, you know, I'm still addressing the things that are being addressed within the photojournalistic work, but I'm, I'm coming at it from a different perspective or a different angle of showing to the world of, you know, the different contemporary issues that you see going on. Ida Moline, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.